Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. We're glad you've chosen to listen and would love to get to know you. To connect, please visit us online at westquassetchapel.com. These podcasts come to you by way of many faithful people who are passionate about seeing others become followers of Jesus. They give and pray for this ministry. By their giving, they help deliver sound biblical teaching to a worldwide audience. If you would like to be a part of the work, text the word GIVE to 833-496-0942. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 4 is where we are at this morning. If you're, if you're new or visiting, we've been working through the book of Acts verse by verse for a bit. We started pre-Christmas and we took a break at Christmas time and then um, we started pretty much almost at the beginning of the year. And so the reason why we're here this morning is that's, that's where we are at. So, um, yeah, and if you're new, glad to see you. So, Okay, I'm going to read um, from verse 13, page 773 in the Church Bibles. And I just would like to look, have you look at verse 12, because that's kind of where we left off. It's a real important verse. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And of course, that's the name we sang about and the name that we prayed in this morning. It's Jesus. And so then verse 13, here we go. Um, This is the word of God. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everything living in Jerusalem, everyone, excuse me, everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people. We must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was 40 years old, over 40 years old. On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God's sovereign Lord they said you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant our father David why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So just a couple of things. So, so we are going to take a more time, Lord willing, next week to focus on that prayer. We're going to deal with it, of course, this morning, but we're going to deal with it in a real, I'll just say a deeper way, um, next Sunday, Lord willing. And then the following Sunday, the, the verses there that um, Walker so lovely read, Um, that'll be the following Sunday. And even as you read this, there's a lot going on there. So we're going to take a particular view this morning, but everything that we read is eventually something's going to be said about it in some way over the next three weeks. So, so if you don't hear it today, take heart. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is if you look at the back of the worship folder and you see the title 
especially the subtitle. First of all, yes, that title was stolen. That's from the song uh, Do Re Mi, right? You know that from The Sound of Music. And she says at the beginning, start at the very beginning. That's a very good place to start. The, the subtitle can be a little sticky, right? What is a Christian? So what I want to say before we get to the, the sermon is this, and I think this will help you when, when that glorious time when the two friends' own children were home. <laughs> I had a dream about the kids last night. It was so beautiful, by the way. So anyway, it was really fun to have that kind of dream. Anyway, so when they were in trouble, say, for example, they were lying, you know, I just wanted them to know that we knew what was going on. So, you know, when you do that whole judicial thing, like, are you telling the truth? You know, and you, you wanted to know they, what they were going to say. 99% of the time, I was in the background going, we know the truth, just say it. We know the truth. You know, we already know, so don't lie. Because I didn't want them to get in trouble, to be quite honest with you. So uh, there was lots of things like that. But the point is, it's like I just wanted them to know that we know. So as you look at this title, What is a Christian? And you're sitting there and you're listening to all these things taking place. This is what I want you to know. No matter what is being said, which is, you know, the word of God hopefully being explained, that if this sermon drives you to Jesus Christ, okay, repentance, faith in him, anyway, then yeah, you're a Christian. And you're a Christian. Fair enough? All right. So that's the first thing. The second thing. The, the third thing, and it has to be said before I pray and actually preach, is there's way too many people that sometimes think that all Christianity is is a system of morals, an ethical system of, of values. It's kind of like a way of life. And if that's all Christianity was, then I can promise you, you do not need Jesus Christ to exist at all for that. Okay? And any theology, any sermon that doesn't have the cross in it, it's woefully lacking. And it could be false. I mean, because all you could say is, well, we just need good teaching or we just need Jesus' teaching. Okay? That is, that is a complete misunderstanding of Christianity. That's why it's been said so many times, for example, in the, the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was actually God when he walked the earth. C.S. Lewis did this perfectly in mere Christianity. It's like, okay, either he was lying, right? But usually good teachers like that don't lie, or he was insane. And usually people that did the things that Jesus did were, was not insane, or he's telling the truth, and he's who he said he is. But the one thing Jesus can't be is just a good old teacher, you know, good old plain teacher teaching us to live a good old moral life. That, that is just, there's too much of that. It's not less than that, but it's way more than that. And I think we'll find out that this morning. Okay, so let's pray, get some help, and get on with it. Father, we, we strongly seek a, a deeper fellowship with the Holy Spirit who speaks through the Scriptures Therefore, what we need is a deep understanding of what is taking place in these verses, why they matter so, why you put them there, and a full awareness of what you would want to teach us from them this morning. So please make us all teachable. Please be my strength. Please be our strength now and enable us to love what you love and to love you more. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Now, every week when we open the book of Acts, we are in a very real sense looking at the beginning of the church. And one of the things that means is the book of Acts is essentially a book of origins. When I was a kid, I loved Marvel comics, and they used to, after every comic, they would always put in the very bottom or the very top a little origin story of the superhero, and they would tell you what their powers were, and that way when you were reading the story, you're like, yep, that's his power, yep, that's what he does. So the book of Acts is an, a story of the origin of Christianity. And again, whenever you go to the origins, you learn something about what is genuine Christianity. In other words, what is authentic, original, real Christianity. And the only honest way to answer that question is to go back to the beginning. And when we do go back to the beginning, several good things happen. And several healthy actions occur. For example, when we go back to the original origins of Christianity, we learn together, okay, openly, we learn together the marks of what a genuine Christian is. And therefore, we'll call it, there's communal clarity, right? Our Bibles are all open, we're hearing the, re the message preached, communal clarity, because we learn together what is 
and isn't Christian. If you like, that means like there's no secret messages, only for a few, but the truth, which is open for everyone. Consequently, if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're a Christian, in light of our studies, either you'll be affirmed, maybe realigned, but hopefully encouraged by what you hear. And if you're not a Christian here or online, and the good news is you will receive by way of the origins of Christianity as we have here in Acts, you're going to get a clear picture from the text of what is authentic, original, genuine Christianity. And I need you to think with me. That's important because, first of all, there are so many things that come to us in so many ways that say, this is Christian, but it is not. Because of that, secondly, to the person who said, you know, look, I've tried Christianity, but it didn't work, so, so I left it. A good question to that person would be, okay, but what did you really give yourself to? You tried Christianity, okay, but what, what was it really that you gave yourself to? And of course, the only way to answer that with any degree of certainty would be to go back to the beginning, back to authentic, original, genuine Christianity. So this week I read something that was super helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to you. If you ask the question every day, are you a Christian, it'll drive you nuts. (laughs) It's unhealthy. The Apostle Paul only asked that question one time. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He told the church, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself, he said. And he says, don't you realize you're in Christ? Unless you're not. So there's a gentleman named T. David Gordon. He's a respected theologian, teacher of religion, teacher of Greek. He's been around for a long time. And he wrote this book in 2004, Why Johnny Can't Preach. And the book is brave. He wrote it because he thought he was dying of cancer. Okay, And he was like, preaching in America needs to improve. I'm just going to let it out. And this is the preface of his book. With the exception of a few revisions, I wrote this book in 2004 while I was undergoing 11 months of treatment for cancer. The book contains a few references to that situation, and I've chosen to leave them there because without the cancer, the book would probably have never been written, as I had to face the realistic possibility that I would not survive the year. And by the way, he did. Having been concerned about the state of preaching for three decades, I believe it would be irresponsible to leave the world without expressing my thoughts about the matter and hope that better preaching might result. Such circumstances may not justify the writing of such a book, but I hope that they at least explain it. Now, I took the time to tell you that because the book is not condemning. It's protective in nature. And it's so Christ-exalting. And he says, okay, there's a form of preaching. He gives four, but here's just one. There's a form of preaching which effectively does this, and he calls it introspective. And it's essentially every week, in some form or fashion, the pastor preaching says, I know you think you're a Christian, but you may not be. Or at least you're not a very good one. And he says that this brand of preaching constantly suggests that if a person is not always perfectly perfect, then the perfect person is probably not a believer, or at least they're on the fringes, or maybe they're just a terrible one. Now listen, to the outsider, that must sound confusing, but to the insider, a certain kind of insider, they might love it. They might love it when the preacher says, you're probably not a Christian, or you're not a good one. Because when they do that, they hear that two things happen. Either they assume that they're talking about someone else, you know, that that person over there, a la the Pharisees in Luke 18, the tax collector and and the sinner, remember? He can't mean me. It's the other person who needs to be straightened out. I'm fine. And, And what do they do? They typically qualify their fitness with some kind of works that they're doing. I did this this week, and I did that this week, and so on. Or... And this is the terrible, the listener will eventually capitulate and say, okay, I'm not a believer, have it your way. I'm horrible, I'm terrible, you know, I'm not good enough, I'm not doing enough. But since the sermon barely mentions Jesus if at all, they receive nothing and they learn nothing about the adequacy of Jesus Christ, the redemptive power of Christ, the, the necessity of grace, what atonement actually means, justification and so on. 
And therefore, there's nothing there to build them, to nourish them, or to build faith in the listener. It's just do more, do more, do more. You're not very good this week. Come on, what's wrong with you? Jesus needs you. And instinctively, all that does is keep your eyes on yourself. Here's the point I'm trying to make. You should not ask yourself every day, am I, am I a Christian? And I should not preach every time, are you a Christian sermons? It'll drive us crazy. It will. But if you never ask the question, that would not be good either. And I don't ask the question here every week. And if you've been here a while, you know that. So out of a good conscience, a clean conscience, I can ask that question today. Are you a Christian? And only you can answer that. Now, okay, let me help you a bit with that question. I think this will help. Christian theologians have said for a long, long time, they make a distinction between the, the, the necessary and sufficient marks or signs of a Christian. Okay? Necessary, sufficient marks. Think of it this way. Let's say you live in a country where all the physicians, doctors, are required to wear a white coat. Okay? But other people can wear a white coat if they wanted to. Then what you could say is that the white coat is a necessary but not sufficient sign that the person is a doctor. In other words, if you're a doctor, you'll be wearing a white coat, absolutely, but just because you wear a white coat, that does not mean you're a doctor. You with me? So if you're trying to figure out, that would be what we would say, that would be the necessary sufficient sign of what makes a doctor a doctor, you would have to look at something beyond the white coat, something that's relatively unique, something that's not shared with anyone else. Okay, so when you come up with a person with a white coat, you shouldn't automatically assume in that country, doctor. So there'd be some dialogue. You know, you'd need him to say fancy words and things like that. And the point is, and please listen, there is so much more than external morality and even just flat out belief. Because James wrote, you know, even the demons believe there's a God, but they're not believers. So what I'm trying to say is, when you think of relatively unique, sufficient cause, it can't, be, it can't just be you're going to church. And it can't just be you pray. And it can't just be you're trying to live a good life, or maybe you think you're living a good life. And it can't be, you know, I want to raise nice children. And it can't just be you're, you're zealous for good works. And that automatically means you're a Christian. Those are great, you know, great signs. But you have to admit, there are people who do those things and work towards them, but they're not Christian. And I need you to hear this, okay? At this age and stage of my life, and I'm so serious about this, I actually hate saying that, what I just said, that there's people who do all those things and they're not Christians. I don't like saying it. I hate saying it. But I have to say it. Because Jesus said it. Jesus said one of the big marks of the last day when he comes and returns is going to be surprise. People were like, I'm in, no brainer. And Jesus is like, no, I'm sorry. That shouldn't make you happy. That should break your heart. So all those things we talked about, they're not relatively unique. Sure, they can be Christian, but they are not necessarily unique to Christianity. However, when we go back to the origins of Christianity, what we just read in Acts 4, the behavior of the believers in Acts 4, that is relatively unique to Christianity. I mean, as you read that, everything was about Jesus and everything was about the gospel. That is unique. Relatively unique marks that are sufficient cause to say, those are believers. Genuine Christians. That they had actually turned to Jesus in repentance and faith. And, and therefore, when you go back to the beginning, to the origins of Christianity, we have something to compare, if you would, our Christianity with. And there are four marks. But, <laughs> just say this. You've you got to remember this. All the gospel requires is repentance and faith. That's why we looked at verse 12. Repentance and faith in Jesus. Nothing more. If you say, well, what about obedience? Hey, that's not what the gospel requires. Your obedience does not convert you. If your obedience converted you, then what Paul said in Galatians 2 would not be true. He said, if, 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 if righteousness could be attained by, 
keeping rules, obeying the law, then Christ died for nothing. So the gospel does produce obedience, indeed unique obedience. That's what we're going to find here, but it doesn't require it. And if you get those things mixed up, that's where you end up in legalism and moralism and works righteousness, and that just ruins the good news. It makes it oppressive, burdensome, and it turns us into monsters. The do-good monsters. So there's no such thing of a Christian who will not repent and turn to Christ. And that's why I said before we ever started preaching, I'm like, if you hear these things and you're driven to Jesus Christ in some way, repentance and faith, then right on, sister, right on, brother, Christian. That is Christian. Not defending yourself and saying, oh, I'm doing Just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sufficient cause. Relatively unique. Okay. Because what is not sufficient cause is condemnation, judgmentalism, pointing fingers at people, saying, why can't you be like us? The hate stuff, like, you know, get, get out of the town, get out of politics, get out, because we got to get our good people in. That's normal, that's religious. Not Christian. Okay, so if you ask the question, if you see there, am I a real question? I gave four marks here. They're there. And here they are. You, you serve God, especially in suffering. You experience God remarkably in prayer. You, you're getting to know God, particularly in evangelism. And then the fourth one, which we're going to spend like a nanosecond on, you imitate God in, inevitably in generosity. Okay, so the number one mark. You see it there, you serve God especially in suffering. So in chapter four, for the very first time, Christians are facing opposition and persecution. Okay, in the first three chapters of Acts, it is they go from strength to strength. There's power, there's grace, Jesus ascends, Spirit comes, Pentecost, sermon, boom, 3,000 men converted. Later on, a man born, unable to walk, Peter, in Christ's name, walk, he walks, preaches, boom, 5,000 more converts added to the church. But after that happened, Peter and John are arrested, and then they're threatened, if your Bible's open, you see verse 23 of chapter 4. On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Okay, question, what was said to them by these religious leaders? Answer, you stop preaching the gospel. You stop preaching Christ crucified. You stop preaching grace and the forgiveness of sins by Jesus alone. I mean, if your Bible's open, do you see verse 17 of chapter 4? but to stop this thing from spreading and any, any further among the people. I mean, really? That's so... Doesn't that make you a little bit angry? They called Christianity a thing? Stop the idea that people can be forgiven, that God saves by grace, that people can receive the very righteousness of Jesus Christ through re repentance? Stop that? And so they threatened them. Verse 30, 21, do you see it there? 21, with further threats. In the Greek, it reads like this. Threat after threat after threat after threat after threat. So there was intensity there. They were given a red line that they should not cross. And this means for the very first time, these Christians were coming to grips with the fact that some of them, not, might, they might die because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Okay, and so they are preaching Christian gospel by lip and by life, and it might mean that some of them might die. So again, this is persecution for the very first time. How do they respond? And loved ones, the way they respond is, is, is noteworthy. So remember a few weeks ago, if you were here, when Ben opened the book of Job? Remember when he said at the beginning of the book, God said to the evil one, have you seen my servant Job? My servant Job? No one like him in all the earth. And the evil one accuses Job because that's what he does best, right? Just, just won't shut up about people, <laughs> He says, he accuses Job that the only reason why Job follows you is, is because you just give him so much good stuff. Remember he said, does, does Job serve God for nothing? That's a little rascal. That's a question. Is Job a servant or is Job a consumer of God? Does, does Job serve God for nothing? In other words, the accusation of the evil one is Job's just a consumer he obeys you, God, because, because you give him so many benefits. He's not a servant. He's a consumer. He, and he's like doing business with you. And as long as the benefits he's getting come out at low cost or no cost, that's what consumers do, then he's with you. But you raise the cost. You decrease the benefits. 
And you know what? He's out of there. And you'll find that he's not serving you. He's serving himself and simply using you, God, to get what he wants. He's a consumer. The minute his personal interests, interests are just taken away and not served, he is done with you. And yet, Ben did a great job of this, and one of my professors said almost exactly what Ben said. He said that the reason why God at the end shows up and vindicates Job is that even though Job has been saying some stuff to God, he's been complaining to God and he's arguing to God, but that's just it. He's complaining and arguing to God. He's been arguing with God. He's been praying to God. And here's the point. If you've gotten into a relationship with God in order to get God to serve you, then when the suffering comes, it will drive you away from God. And you'll say, what good is this? What good is this? You know, I'm sorry, but I want to use this cliche. You will make like a tree and leave. Right? I'm done with Christianity. Therein making everything about us. And, you know, we've, maybe you have. I've run into people. You know, I didn't get what I want out of the relationship with God. Something terrible happened and I got out. Or they say something like, I was a Christian. I was doing everything right. Something bad happened, and I was like, God, help me to get me out of this, and I didn't get out of this. In fact, things got worse. So forget you, God. If you let this happen to me, I'm out. Okay, but if you're serving God for who he is, and not what you'll get, if you're serving God for his sake, and not your sake, when the suffering comes... This is, the, this is what happened here in Acts 4. It will drive you closer to him. It intensifies the relationship. It doesn't weaken the relationship, not if it's real. I mean, here's a great example. Three plus years ago, personal life, just me, personal life, just bad. Ah. Okay? And it was a really tough part or time in my ministry. And I remember talking to my wife, and this is what she said. I said, are you praying for me? She says, yes. I said, what, what are you praying for me? And you know what the first thing she said to me was? I pray that you and I will grow closer in our relationship. I'm like, can't you pray something about the people that are on my back? You know, what, what is this? Well, the, you get the point. When the suffering comes, the genuine Christian is drawn to God. They're not like run away from God. Okay, sure they can be like Job and they can, you know, kick and scream on the way there, of course. But the fact is, they remain. They remain. Listen to Peter. You, 1 Peter 1. You now rejoice in this hope, even if it's necessary for you to be distressed for a short time by various trials. This is necessary so that your faith may be found genuine. Trials come, stay, faith real. Your faith is more valuable than gold because gold can be destroyed easily, a little paraphrase there, but your genuine faith will result in praise, glory, and honor for you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, if your Bible is open, look at this remarkable prayer. Verse 23, because of the gospel, because of the gospel preaching, gospel proclamation, they may die, get it, and instinctively, they actually, they, because they belong to God, they turn to God in prayer. Suffering comes instinctively right to God in prayer. Now, we're going to look at the prayer in more detail later on, but let's, look, look, look what they say. Actually, look what they don't say. They hardly ask for anything. They do not ask God for, to destroy their enemies. They do not ask God that they would be protected from their enemies or even their personal possessions would be protected, the health and wealth stuff. They don't ask for a change in the circumstance or any kind of protection, but what they ask for, and it's so simple, there are two things. Verse 28 Give us boldness to articulate the message of the gospel. That's verse 28. Verse 29, they ask for God to continue to show evidence that their message is really God's word. So they ask for ways to continue in their ministry, and that is it. God, let the gospel keep going, come what may. Let Christ be proclaimed, preached. Let, let his power be displayed no matter what happens. So again, they didn't ask for miracles of vengeance on their rulers, but God, keep doing these miracles of mercy. People are going to be helped. Do you think that man who was born crippled after 40 years isn't loving him some Jesus because he can walk? Keep helping people through your mighty power. That is beautiful. 
And that is Christian. That is sufficient cause relatively unique to Christianity. In other words, this is how Christians pray. Father, please just give us courage. We're not necessarily asking for you to make things easier. We want just to serve you, Father. Deal with our fearfulness because of the gospel proclamation and all the threats that are coming. Father, deal with our anxiety. Give us enough courage so that we can boldly proclaim Jesus to people. And you, Father, you keep continuing to change people's lives, their physical lives, actually, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so there's nothing wrong with praying for your needs. We understand that. A third of the Lord's prayer is, give me, give me, give me. That's fine, because we need to ask God daily for daily provision. No problem there. Deliver us from evil. No problem there. But here's the thing. If it's the only thing, if it's the only thing, there's some things that need to be thought through. The first thing that happened here in this context, when the suffering comes, is let me continue to serve you, God. Deal with the anxiety. Deal with my fear. Deal with me. And give me courage to keep being a gospel woman, a gospel man, a gospel kid. That is sufficient cause, relatively unique to Christianity. That is why a genuine Christian, when the suffering comes, when the bad things happen, yeah, they're going to kick, and yeah, they're going to scream if you're like me. You're going to deliberate with God if you're like Job. You're going to have some meltdowns. You're going to have some, you know, walk out of the room type stuff. But you remain. By the grace of God, you remain. Listen to Psalm 73. Right? Psalm 73, most of it's a complaint. Why are all these people that do bad things, why are they doing so well? And then he calms down. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And there is no one upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they will fail, but God, you are my strength. The strength of my heart and my portion forever. Job 13. I love this. Though you slay me, this is Job to God, though you slay me, Yet will I hope in you. Jesus asked the 12. John 6, everybody's hating Jesus right now, at least the majority of people are there, because he's saying some wild stuff about blood and, and, and flesh. And Jesus looks at the 12 and says, do you, do you want to leave me too? Remember what Peter says? Lord, where would we go? <laughs> where would we go? So the suffering comes and it's terrible. Where are you going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And this may sound a little prickly. I do not mean it to. But if we just walk away, when bad things happen, never to return, then why would we, you know, what, what, why would we think we're Christian? It's a question. That's it. Why? Think about it. Okay, a mark of a Christian. Here's one way really clear. You serve God, especially in suffering. For better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness, than in hell. And let me just say this, just to be real. Like, I might say that boldly, but I understand that. I could... It could be really, really hard for me to do that. So I'm going to need a lot of grace when the suffering comes, whenever it comes, because it will inevitably will come. In a broken world, it has to. Number two, you experience God remarkably in prayer. Now, now everybody prays according to almost every national poll, the majority of people pray in America. And they say, this is what they say, when they pray, they pr specifically, it's just mostly about their needs. Fine. And in that way, if you would, if all we talk to God is about our personal needs, that's it, then you know what DoorDash is? You know, they come and they, and they bring you the meal, or, right? They come and bring you the meal. You don't have a personal relationship with the DoorDash people, right? They're not, when you order and use DoorDash, they're like, oh, there it is. It's just a one-way track. You might have a promo code with 100% off. <laughs> Here it comes. So, so that's a one-way relationship. A two-way relationship is two-way communication. So God has revealed himself through his word. God has communicated to us in these days in his word. So there's a gentleman named Eugene Peterson. He says, praying is talking to God, yes, but it's also answering God in our petition. So he says this, we only speak because someone has spoken, us, spoken to us. Right? If, if we grew up in a context where no one said a word to us, we would just babble. The only reason why we speak, even the language that we speak, is because someone spoke to us first. And we learn to respond 
in speech to them because they spoke first. So Eugene Peterson goes on to say, it's the same thing in prayer. God has spoken to us in his word. God has revealed himself in the son that he has sent and in his word that he's given. And so prayer at its core then is a response to God. Now think with me. <laughs> I was going to say, this happens a lot. It does. If, if a person, you have a person in front of you, a friend, we'll call them, and they just pour out their life story to you. And it's real, and it's, it's clear, and it's moving. They tell you what they've done and what has happened to them. And then after that, after they're done, if you just totally ignore what they have said, and you talk about anything and everything else other than what they've said, and you make no reference to what they've said, and you talk about something else and ignore them completely, one, that would be incredibly rude. Two, that would be pretty arrogant, pride-filled. But at the heart of it, that's not communication. Here's the thing. But if that's how we pray, if we're not fully immersed in the Scripture and praying in response to the Scripture, to God's Word, which, because that's exactly what happens here. Is your Bible open? Verse 29. They, they pray. They're in a pickle. They ask for boldness. That's verse 29. To speak the Word. Because they were afraid. And they are in need. And what do they do? In response to God's revealed word, will through his word, we need help God to proclaim Jesus Christ and hold fast. That's a response to what God has said to them. So that's a relational prayer. They didn't say, oh Lord, protect us, full stop. That's not enough. Nor do they only say, give us the courage. I'm afraid, give me courage so I don't have these feelings. No, it was verse 25. Do you see it there? They go right to the scriptures. God, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through your servant David. And what are they quoting? They are quoting Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is about the sovereignty of God. And they begin, verse 24, Sovereign Lord. And, and sovereignty is the supreme, if you would, in chargeness of God. That God's in control and that God's in charge. And all things, that they, all the threats that they are dealing with uh, by the Sanhedrin, they're part of his plan. So they want courage, but not just like full stop, so it's not a grocery list. They want courage so they can keep doing God's revealed will through his word. It's God, you said we are to proclaim the gospel. We're afraid because of the threats of the Sanhedrin. We're afraid. Please, verse 29, enable your servant to speak your words with great boldness. So here's the principle. It's really simple. They strategically find attributes of God that is in direct contrast to their fear. Okay? These bad men want us dead. But God, you are sovereign over those bad men. That's what Psalm 2 says, the psalm that we just quoted. So they strategically find the attributes of God that is in direct contrast to their fear. So what I want to say to you, and this is how relationships work, the good ones, they're thinking deeply about the other person. They're thinking deeply about God. What God has said. And they're thinking, deep, thinking deeply about Jesus. That's a two-way relationship. And they have done a quality job of listening to the apostles preach. Remember in Acts 2.42, the marks of a church? They gave themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they, by golly, they were listening to the sermons. And they were reading their Bible in a whole new way. Allah Psalm 2. And now they're talking to God in keeping with the way that he talked to them. <laughs> Does this ever happen to you? I wish it had happened to me more. You're your spouse or your friend. You're in a store with them and they're like, oh, I really like that. Or you're in a conversation and they're like, oh, that would be really cool to have. And then like three or four months later, you remember that talk and you get them the thing, whatever it is. What does that say? It says you were listening. You were listening really, really well. On the other end of that stick, have you ever had somebody talk to you like your spouse and they're talking but you're not listening? And then they say with all the love in their heart, tell me what I just said. And you're like, uh, something. <laughs> they were taught the Bible. They get into their Bibles. And they prayed their Bible. And they thought about God and the context of their situation. 
And I want you to notice, because of that, did you notice how gospel-centered their prayer was? And this is my own personal experience. I know sometimes people, when you quote when you quote the gospel stuff in prayers and in conversations, sometimes that makes people angry. Sometimes it makes Christian people angry. It shouldn't. The rich word of God is all pointing to one person, Jesus Christ. And so the prayerfully, they prayfully line up with all the attributes of Jesus and all his assignments about the gospel. And so they strategically find the attribute of God that is direct contrast to their fear and they say, give us help to do your will. We're afraid and we need courage. And then they line up their needs with what God has said already. And fundamentally, then they line up their petition with who God is and what God wants. That's number two, experiencing God remarkably in prayer. And the irony of the prayer is, is, is there's so little about them. It's so much about God, you're in charge, and um, God, you're sovereign. So you, sure, you can pray about yourself, absolutely, but all the time? C.S. Lewis, that classic statement, aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim only for earth, you get neither. That's true. It's the same in prayer. Okay, four marks of a real, real Christianity. Sufficient cause, relatively unique. They serve God, especially in suffering. Experience God remarkably in prayer. And then finally, you're getting to know God, particularly in evangelism. This is brief, stimulating, and soothing, I hope. In the book of Acts, you read that believers were constantly filled with the Spirit. 56 times Luke talks about the Spirit in the book of Acts. Verse 8, you see it there, chapter 4, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, it reads, Peter was filled with the Spirit, and then he spoke the gospel in that context. Verse 31, they prayed, and after they played, they were what? Filled with the Spirit. We'll talk about the building shaking next time, I promise. And Luke tells us 56 times, Spirit comes, Spirit comes. Here's the thing. Either the Spirit comes because they're praying or it happens in some context. Now the problem with that is that it might apply that they were empty the second before and then the spirit came and they were filled therefore there you know this is what sometimes people go down the slide there, there's must have, must have been something wrong with them indulge me here you know they, they must have been walking in sin <laughs> they, they must have been in the flesh there is no indication at all in the book of Acts that that is taking place here, especially not here. Peter and John were not walking in sin, and they were not walking in the flesh before God filled them in chapter 4, verse 8. So what does Luke mean when he says they were filled with the Spirit? Well, it, it means being filled with the Spirit, as Luke describes it here, is God taking what you already know in your head and in your heart, and he heightens the reality in your whole person. Right? These, Peter and John were just ordinary guys. Unestablished, no credentials. And they're going before, the, 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 in, that, in their minds, the highest tribunal of representing God on earth. That's what the Sanhedrin thought they were. Get it? So they needed help, spiritual power to deal with that in a way, because, by the way, they, because they dealt with it that way, guess what? We got the gospel. If it all shut down there, like, okay, you're right, don't hurt us, Jesus is just Jesus, leave us alone, then it all, it doesn't come here. So God takes what, what they already know in their head and he heightens the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has said in their whole person and they, so it's not a refilling, it's not empty to full, but it is a re-heightening. Jesus in John 16, when the Spirit comes, he says he will take what is mine and, and make it known to you, manifest it to you. The, it's, it's, it's like messaging, like, you know, instant message from his word. Not secret messages, but instant message, okay? So that Peter, filled with the Spirit, said exactly the right thing to the Sanhedrin. And these Christians who were taught by the apostles, who were filled with the Spirit, when they settle to pray, they pray exactly the right thing in verses 22, 3 and following. And they pray it for the right reason. You see it there, verse 31, they spoke the word of God boldly. Confidently is actually a, a really good translation. So J.I. Packer can help us here. He said the Holy Spirit is like a spotlight. 
So if you're driving at night and you see a spotlight shining on the building, the, the work of the spotlight is to take your eyes to the light all the way to the building that it's shining on. And so you usually don't say, wow, what a beautiful spotlight. What do you say? Holy mackerel, what a beautiful building. So when you're filled with the Spirit, you're not saying, here I go, I got the Spirit. You know, like uh, um, Darth Vader, you know, like electricity coming from your fingers. Like, not like that. Being filled with the Spirit is being filled with this person of Jesus Christ. And the Jesus becomes overwhelmingly beautiful to you, precious to you. You can say stuff about him in front of the hardest groups. What, you, what he wants, you want. And so it's heightened, it's compelling, and it's soothing as well. Because you, you love him in a way, and you love the truth in a way that you weren't before. You, you serve in a way that you weren't before. You're assured in a way that you weren't before. I mean, later on in Galatians, Peter's going to have a little Jesus meltdown when he's around a bunch of Jewish people. Remember that? So he doesn't live on this high. Don't get me wrong. But it's there when it's needed. It heightens the senses. And that's what's happening here. Now let's think about this, and we're just about done. Because the Christians were genuine in Acts 4, two things happened. Okay? In the book of Acts, as Christ was preached, people heard Christianity was attractive and growing, but it was also hated and attacked. When we get the latter part of 4, early 5, we're going to find that out. So it was attractive and growing, but at the same time, it was hated and attacked. Okay, attractive and growing, we love that. Please do that, God. But hated and attacked. Okay, so when we are hated and attacked because of the gospel, not because, you know, we're being rude, mean, evil, but because of the gospel, we need at least two things. One is what happens here. We need the courage to continue. And that has to come in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also need comforting and soothing. And I hope you can admit that. There's a song. It's, I love the song. and it's, it's, it's from the 80s and it's a Christian song. And it's going to sound kind of corny now. But I'm going to say it because I used to sing it all the time. I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to say it. And the line goes, they don't know that I go running home when I fall down. They don't know who picks me up when no one is around. I drop my sword and I cry for just a while. Because deep inside this armor, the warrior is a child. Jesus is not John Wayne. (laughs) So we don't have to be either. And if we're not active evangelists, then, then, you know, we're not going to know what I'm trying to talk about this morning. Let me close with this good illustration from D.A. Carson. He he said that, he lives in Chicago at the time of this illustration. There's a radio talk show, a Jewish person named Milt Rosenberg. Super interesting, well-informed. He gets on with people and and this, he says, he says, he's the odd talk show host who actually encourages people to say what they think instead of trying to belittle them and run them down and control the discussion. A few years ago, he invited three people from different Christian backgrounds. I want to label them except for one who was an evangelical Christian teaching at a nearby biblical college. So so it's like, it wasn't me, it was someone else. And the question was this, all right, I'm a Jew. This is what Milton says. What possible reason will you give me to tell me, unless I believe in Jesus, I'm lost and I'm going to hell? Milt is never known for being, un, uh, being understated in its approach. So the first chap said, well, I'm not sure because you don't, uh, you don't believe in Jesus that you actually you know, won't be saved. I mean, that's, that's a bit narrow-minded to me. That's the first person. So I don't want to go down the path. Second person kind of waffles around the place, and then he comes to the third person. And the third person started to speak, and he started to tell of Jesus and sin and who Jesus was and the divinity, humanity, But then he just, in the middle of it, he just stops. And he begins to cry. And he he begins to weep. And for three minutes on national radio, he's crying. And this is what Milton Rosenberg, the Jewish man, said. He said, that's the best argument I've ever heard. 
So sometimes we're filled with the Spirit. And in the New Testament, it comes in different ways, but it always returns to Jesus Christ. It always returns to, I don't care how filled with the Spirit you are, it's gentleness and it's compassion, it's straightforwardness, it's courage, it's holiness, it's integrity, it's loving people. It's loving people. So when you see there in verse 31, when they pray together after you know, Peter and John came back with the bad news, they prayed together after they prayed, the place was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They spoke the Logos. The same in John, the Logos, the living word of God boldly. So they were very bold Christians speaking about Jesus. Now, I know we know there's different gifts and we, we know that some people's personalities are so much more outgoing than others. That's beautiful. That's the beauty of the way God made people. But somewhere down the line, to be filled with the Spirit works out in some way of confessing Jesus Christ confidently in different contexts that God, who is sovereign, puts us in. All right. What are the marks of a Christian? You serve God, especially in suffering. You experience God remarkably in prayer. You're getting to know God, particularly in evangelism. And then the final one is you imitate God inevitably in generosity. Do you see verse 32? When they, when they started following Jesus... They were just so generous. They were so generous. Okay, thanks for your attention. Let's pray together. Now, Father, it is very clear that outside of Jesus Christ, no one could ever stand in your presence. And many of us would say, in light of what we heard, that we have sinned. I've said that. I have not nailed these four points down to any degree. And so we would look to forgiveness for that to whatever degree that we need it. And so we confess then our need for Jesus and our need for your mercy. Thank you that your word tells us that your mercy endures forever, that your compassion never fails. So just bring compassion on this fellowship, this church that belongs to you. And so thank you that the confidence that the finished work of Jesus Christ brings us That is a real thing, and that's an everyday thing. That's the one thing every day that we should remind ourselves of, that we can wake up every morning knowing that we are accepted by you, not because of what we do or don't do, but because of the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ and what he has done at the cross. May we never be ashamed to confess you before others and restrain the evil counsel of those who set themselves against you, convert our enemies, and make them our friends. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening. If you were helped or encouraged by what you heard, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westclassetchapel.com. There you will find other resources to connect you to Christ and His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. If you would like to be a part of this ministry, expanding our gospel reach, please text the word GIVE to 833-496-0942. We hope you join us again as we continue to grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.